And if you'll turn in your copy of God's Word to 2 Samuel chapter 9. 2 Samuel chapter 9 will be our sermon text this Lord's Day as we continue in our study of now King David's reign. If you've been with us, you know in the last couple of chapters that God has made a covenant in chapter 7 with King David. And part of that covenant promise was that God would remove all of David's enemies. And last Lord's Day we saw in chapter 8 how God did that very thing to the north and south, east and west. How he expanded David's territory and the kingdom of Israel all the way to the boundaries that he had promised long before to Abraham. And so we've seen this theme throughout our study that God is a covenant-keeping God, that God always keeps his promises. And, and even beyond his promises to David, we see all of these things coming to fruition now. And so now David, after all these years of running from Saul and then becoming uh, inaugurated as the king and now defeating the enemies, now there's a, a season of peace in fact, verse 15 of chapter 8 says, So David reigned over all of Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. We talked last week about what a, a foretaste that was of a kingdom that is to come in a new heaven and a new earth. And so now that's the position that David is in. He has been the recipient of God's grace and mercy. And now in chapter 9, he's going to be one who gives grace and mercy to another. He's going to show grace as he's been given grace. He's going to show kindness as he's been given kindness. And so we're going to look at the entirety of 2 Samuel chapter 9, uh, verses 1 through 13, and out of reverence for God's word, if you're able, if you would stand once again for the reading of our passage today. And this is what the Holy Word of God says. And David said... Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan who is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king said to Ziba, Saul's servant, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. 
But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at the king's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he always ate at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. If you would pray with me. Father, we pray as we consider this, this picture we have in front of us in 2 Samuel 9, this picture of mercy and grace and kindness. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see how this is a picture indeed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I pray, God, for any here today who's yet to respond to the gospel, that today would be indeed the day of salvation for them. I pray for those who have responded to the gospel, that this day would be a great encouragement to each of us in our faith. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Several years ago, the BBC ran a news article with the following headline. It said, Unwanted Indian Girls Get New Start in Name Ceremony. And this article detailed how in parts of India, uh, how girls are primarily unwanted. Uh, families are poor, and when they have a daughter, uh, they are expected to give an enormously large dowry to the family uh, of the groom who marries their daughter. And so it's an enormous financial burden. And for families that are already impoverished, they essentially go into a, a lifelong debt in order to pay this dowry when they have a daughter. As a result, sadly, uh, many young girls are aborted in India even today. And this article detailed how for those who are not aborted, they are still reminded daily that they were unwanted. Because oftentimes, their parents or a family member will give them the name Nakusa or Nakushi, which in Hindi means unwanted. And so this article talked about how there was a, a renaming ceremony for 285 of these girls. They would now get the opportunity, some around the age of eight, others into their teenage years, to have a new name. To no longer be called to and referred to on a daily basis as unwanted. One of the girls was quoted in the article. She said this. And now in school my classmates and friends will be calling me this new name. And that makes me very happy. She's a 15 year old girl that was named Nakusha by her grandfather. Who was disappointed by her birth. Her new name she chose was Ashmati. Which means tough or rock hard. In Hindi. At the end of this article was a picture taken at the ceremony of these girls. Their faces filled with joy as they held up certificates with their new name on it. Imagine what it would be to experience that. Uh, to grow up an outcast, to be a burden on those around you or seen as a burden by them. And then through... The, the sudden act of kindness of another for all of that to change. 
It's a beautiful picture for us. And it's one that really points us towards the grace and the mercy of God. How we, in our situation, have been drastically changed and rescued by a benevolent and loving God. It's a picture that we see in the gospel. It's a picture that we see throughout the scripture. And it's certainly a picture that we see here in 2 Samuel chapter 9. As David shows kindness and grace and mercy to this crippled outcast named Mephibosheth. This is one of my favorite chapters, really in all of the scripture. It's one that immediately when I knew I was going to be preaching through First and Second Samuel, my, my mind went to this day, to this text, to this sermon, because this chapter of scripture, it's such a vivid reminder for us of what God in His grace has done. And so I pray that we'll see that picture as we walk through this text together today. Beginning with that first point there in your outline. This reminder that Mephibosheth was a crippled outcast. Verse 1, we see David now at this point where the kingdom is at peace, where there's equity and justice, where the enemies have been defeated. He wants to know if there's someone he can show kindness to for Jonathan's sake. You may remember from earlier in our study of 1 Samuel how David and Jonathan had a covenant with one another. And part of that covenant that they had was that David, when he became king, he would show kindness to Jonathan if Jonathan was still alive. And he would show kindness to Jonathan's children, to the house of Jonathan. And this is a a promise, a commitment that David had made long before. And now he's going to honor that commitment. And so first he needs to find who there might be that he can show this kindness to. And so there's still remaining a servant from the house of Saul. This probably was one of the chief servants in Saul's household. And we know his name here is Ziba. And Ziba is called before the king. And he tells him that there indeed is still a child. There's a son who was born to Jonathan who is now crippled in his feet. And his name, of course, is Mephibosheth. And we learned about Mephibosheth uh, just a few chapters back in chapter 4. I mentioned then that we'd be talking more about him because it's it's almost a footnote in chapter 4, almost sort of an interruption, but it's to give a picture to to us of what is to come, and now it's come. It's the story of Mephibosheth's childhood. In chapter 4, we learned that when David and, or excuse me, when Saul and Jonathan were killed in battle, that there was fear that the household of Saul and Jonathan would be wiped out. And so out of this fear, the nurse of Mephibosheth, who was just a child at the time, takes him and flees with him. Now, we know there's some sort of accident. We, we don't know all the details. We don't know if she, she fell literally on him and crushed his ankles and legs. We don't know if perhaps she put him on a horse and in riding he, he fell off and broke his ankles and legs. But what we know is that in the course of fleeing out of fear, he was then made a crippled. He could no longer walk. He could no longer really take care of himself. He would be a burden on others. Ziba tells David that Mephibosheth is the one who he can show kindness to. And David immediately asks in verse 4, where is he? And Ziba tells him that Mephibosheth is living in a land known as Lodabar. Now this is where names can be helpful to us. First, Mephibosheth's name. His name means... From the mouth of shame. That there's a picture here that his name was really given to him 
later perhaps because of his crippled condition or in God's providence, that was his name, and then he became crippled. But, but his name seems surrounded by this idea of shame, of outcast, of unwanted. And then he's, he's living in this land known as Lodabar, which comes from two Hebrew words, which literally means no thing, nothing. It means no pasture. The, the picture here is this is a, a dry and barren land on the outskirts of the kingdom where nobody would really want to live there. There's nothing flourishing. There's nothing that's going to be produced from this land. And yet this is where Mephibosheth is. The picture we're giving is that he's living in someone else's home and that makes sense to us because he can't take care of himself. And so we here we have this young man at this point who couldn't care for himself, living in a place that had nothing to offer. And most commentators agree that Mephibosheth is likely living in hiding at this point. Fearful for his life. See, it was customary, as I've mentioned before, in David's day when, when a new family came to rule for them to wipe out the descendants of the other family so that there would be no challenge to the throne. So it would have been acceptable in David's day for him to completely wipe out the household of Saul. Now, we already know from what's taken place that that's something God has already done much of already. In fact, he said prophetically to Saul that his household, his name would be wiped out, and much of that has taken place. But we see there's still descendants like Mephibosheth. But Mephibosheth at this point likely is afraid that that very thing was going to happen, and so he is prepared to spend his life in hiding, a crippled outcast living in the middle of nowhere. But all of that is about to change for him, as we see here in the second point in your outline. A David, point two, was a benevolent king with a gracious offer. And so he does not leave Mephibosheth in that crippled, outcast condition. He, he sins for Mephibosheth. Now, imagine what that would have been for Mephibosheth. Imagine what that day would have been like. If Mephibosheth indeed was living in hiding, and even if he wasn't, his crippled condition would be a daily reminder to him of what had taken place. That, that he was from the royal family, that that he was in line to the throne to be king one day, and yet all that had changed when his father and his grandfather were killed in battle. And whoever it was they feared might come after him next. He was then taken into hiding, and perhaps he is fearful of David, that David's the one that might take his life one day. And so here's this crippled young man living as a burden to others who on a daily basis is probably peering over the horizon just waiting for the day when the king's men would come to get him and take him to the castle where his life would end. And then the day comes. Then the king's men arrive. And then they take him to David. But his encounter with David is far different likely than what he had imagined it would be. Verse 6 tells us Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face to pay homage. Perhaps in that moment, Mephibosheth prepared to, to plead for his very life. But notice what we read. Before he can do that, David says what to him? Do not fear. For I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. That, that, that word, kindness, 
really is the focal point of this entire chapter. It's the same Hebrew word that was used in the covenant that David made with Jonathan and Jonathan made with David. It's a picture of steadfast love. It's a picture of grace. It's a picture of grace and kindness that's shown not because it's earned or merited, not because of any conditions. It's a benevolent kindness that's freely offered without payment or expectation. And Jonathan, in making that covenant with David, says, will you show this kindness to my descendants? And now David is doing that very thing. He's going to show that kindness to Mephibosheth. And he says he's going to show it to him primarily in two ways. He promises him two things. First, he promises him land. In verse 7, he says, I'll restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. Now, when we first read that, we might think, oh my goodness, David's going to give him the entire kingdom. (laughs) But the context here likely means that when he says land, he he means pasture and fields. He's he's referring to the family land of Saul. You might remember uh, way back earlier in 1 Samuel chapter 9, when we're first introduced to Saul, we read that he's the son of Kish and that Kish was a very wealthy man. And so Saul likely had a a lot of of family pasture and family land. And that land would have remained in his family. And so David is saying to Mephibosheth that the first thing we're going to do is we're going to right a wrong here. That this was your land. This should be your land. And we're going to get this land back to you. Now, perhaps the question in Mephibosheth's mind at this point is, what am I going to do with that? (laughs) I mean, remember, he's crippled. He's lame in both feet. He has no resources. He he has nothing really to his name at this point. How how is he going to take care of this enormous land, of of this farm and fields and pasture and livestock? How how is he going to do that? Well, David makes a provision for him. He tells that, uh, he does that by tasking Ziba to take care of Mephibosheth. Now, We're going to learn more about Ziba as we walk through 2 Samuel. He appears a couple more times, but but if you look at those passages and then come back to this passage, you get a fuller picture of him, and we'll just say for now, he's not the most honest person. In fact, he seems a little bit conniving and selfish and just looking out for his own interests. Now remember, Ziba was one of the chief servants of the household of Saul. And the way things worked in this day is that once Saul had died and Jonathan had died, then Ziba and his children would have then served the next descendant. And so it would have been Ziba's responsibility to take care of Mephibosheth. But it doesn't seem to be that's what he's doing. We also note that King David, with all his vast resources, didn't even know about Mephibosheth, and yet Ziba knows about him immediately and knows exactly where he is. How does he know that? You put those pieces together, and I think at least one plausible argument would be that Ziba indeed was tasked with the care of Mephibosheth, that that Ziba knew that all this land rightly belonged to Mephibosheth, but Ziba, in looking out for his own self-interest, he kind of hides Mephibosheth off as an outcast, and then he takes care of all that land. He's keeping it for himself. 
He's keeping that profit, the produce, everything from the land. In fact, the scripture tells us he has all these children and all these servants. 15 sons and 20 servants. For what? To take care of this massive property. He was living in someone else's house. He was sleeping in someone else's bed. He was an imposter and an impersonator. But all that's about to change. In God's providence, God is going to right this wrong. And so now in God's providence, notice what happens. Ziba's now going to take care of Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth is going to take his rightful place on that land. And now Ziba and all his children and all his servants are going to take care of Mephibosheth. Now, it's not settled that easily. It will come back to it later. But for now, it's important to see the kindness of God given through King David to Mephibosheth to restore this land to him. The second thing we see is that he's going to give Mephibosheth a seat at his table. So David's going to take this this crippled outcast and he's going to give him a seat at the table of the king. Now, just imagine for a moment what that scene would look like. There at the head of the table, probably with much fanfare, you, you would have the seat of King David. And then lining both sides of the table, you would have spots reserved for officials and his army. Leaders in his kingdom, his own children would be there at that table. His oldest son, Abnon, would probably be sitting there close beside him. And perhaps beside her would be Tamar, who we're told in the scriptures, as David's daughter was a woman of great beauty. Perhaps the most beautiful woman in the entire kingdom. And across from them, perhaps, would sit Absalom. We read in 2 Samuel 14.25 that now in all Israel there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. I mean, just picture that scene for a moment. At the king's table, you would have royalty. You would have splendor. You would have military leaders. And you would have young men and women without blemish everything around that table was beautiful everything around that table indicated strength and might in the household of David and then as they come for dinner one night they see there's an extra place and an extra chair perhaps Tamar would turn to her brother and say brother who's coming to dinner tonight <laughs> maybe would say I'm not sure or maybe Maybe it's another foreign dignitary coming to pay homage to our father. Maybe he's bringing great gifts. Maybe he's bringing more gold and silver and livestock. Maybe it's one of father's military commanders. Maybe he's coming to tell us about another kingdom that's been conquered. And then as they sit there waiting for the guest, they hear a a thumping. That the sound of crutches on that cobblestone floor. And the door opens and in comes this crippled man. And they don't know who he is. A young boy who can't walk. Maybe there's people carrying him literally to his seat. And there Mephibosheth has a place at the table of the king. 
Imagine what a scene that would be. And friends, what you have there is a picture. A picture that's a reminder to us of a greater picture and a greater story. And that's where we'll go in our last point here, point three. Mephibosheth accepted the king's offer and he became a child of the king. Verse 11 tells us, so Mephibosheth ate at the king's table like one of the king's sons. That this wasn't just an occasional guest. He, he was treated with all the rights and privileges of an heir to the king. He was treated like a son of David. Now this was not Mephibosheth's initial response to David. And he didn't just right away say, great, what time's dinner? Notice the very first thing he said when David made this offer to him. What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? <laughs> Think about that picture. Some of you know that my wife and children have two dogs. These dogs, I'm told... Bring us great joy. They do. They're, they're good puppies. They bring us joy every time they chew the molding in the room they're in and pee on the carpet, make messes, bark and wake me up. But they, they truly do things. They, they warn us when someone's at the door. They, when they're out in the yard, they... they they ward off animals that we don't want around. They, they actually do some things for us. They're helpful. They bring joy. But a dead dog? A dead dog doesn't fetch. A dead dog doesn't bark and ward off strangers. A dead dog is useful for nothing. Nobody wants a dead dog. And Mephibosheth's initial response to King David is a reminder to us of that condition he had been in. He was unwanted. He was an outcast. He was a nobody from nowhere. And he stands before the king and says, well, what would you ever want me for? And yet, the scripture shows us that eventually he ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And the reason he could do that was because David showed him grace. See, friends, grace is not merited. Grace is not earned. Grace is not given to us because of what we bring to the table. We stand before a holy, sovereign, benevolent God as dead dogs. We don't turn the head of the Father with our performance. Well, we didn't do something so deserving that the sovereign creator of heaven and earth turned his head and looked at us and said, Wow, look at Richard and what he's doing. I think I'll save him now. No. We bring nothing to the table. God in his benevolence shows us such great grace and mercy. And just in this Picture we see just like it where David shows this grace and kindness to this crippled outcast. So God shows his grace to us. 
I mean, it's quite a vivid picture, isn't it? A crippled outcast who lives in the land of nothing. A benevolent king who goes and seeks him out. And a gracious offer to become like a child of the king and sit at his table. And what we see eventually is his response is one of humility and acceptance. And nobody from nowhere gets a seat at the table of the king. And friends, that's the picture of the gospel. The scripture says we are born outcasts. That we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that the wages of our sin is death. And just as we see Adam and Eve in the garden as a result of their sins are cast out, so are we. We are born in this outcast condition. And yet God does not leave us there. Just as David goes looking for Mephibosheth, God pursues us. God does not wait for us in our sin to come suddenly aware and seek. No, God comes looking for us and pursuing us. God in this moment is pursuing you and I through the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And in His benevolence, in His grace, well, He makes us quite an offer as well. He promises us, like David promised Mephibosheth, a a place, a kingdom. It's not one of this world of this earth. Jesus talks about it though. He says, I go and prepare a place for you. It's an eternal home. It's an eternal kingdom. It's a land of promise that will come in a new heaven and a new earth. And he also promises us, like David did Mephibosheth, a seat at his table where we will dine with him and he with us. But to go to that king and then to sit at that table, we have to respond to his offer just as Mephibosheth had to respond to David's. We have to accept it. Romans chapter 10 says we accept it through confessing that Jesus indeed is Lord and believing that God raised him from the dead. When we repent and place our belief and trust in Jesus, then we have a seat at the table. And then everything changes for us. Then we get a new heart and new desires. And then we get a new name, the name Christian. And we get a seat at the king's table forever. Imagine what that scene will one day be. (laughs) There at that table in eternity. There's David (laughs) and Abraham. And Noah and Moses. And there's Mephibosheth. But he's not crippled anymore. He doesn't look like an outcast or a beggar. In fact, he he looks like everyone else. There's equity. And there's justice. And all has been made new. And that's the table at which we will be seated as well. If our trust and our hope is in Christ. So the invitation this Lord's Day is the invitation we offer every Lord's Day. Put your faith in Christ, your trust in Christ, and to walk daily with Christ. So if you'll stand together as I pray for us that we would do that very thing. And as we offer this time of response to God's Word. Father, we thank you for the grace and the kindness that you have shown us in Jesus.
We thank you, Lord, that, that you have saved us, not because of who we are, not because of our great condition. No, Lord, the scripture tells us that just like this picture we see of Mephibosheth, we're, we're born crippled. Maybe our legs work and our feet work and our bodies work, but, but our hearts don't the way they should. The scripture tells us that our hearts are hearts of stone, unbelief, defiance, rebellion. And in your grace, through the gospel of Jesus, you take that heart of stone, that heart of rebellion, and you change it and make it new. And you bring us to your table, and you make us your children. It's a benevolent, kind, and gracious offer. But we have to receive it. So, Father, I pray this morning for... Anyone here who's yet to receive this offer. Perhaps there are some who have spent their adult life sitting in a pew in this church or another. And yet they've never humbled themselves to the point of repentance and of completely trusting in Jesus. Perhaps there are some who are younger who have been growing up in this church since they were little kids. And now they're coming to a point where they can understand and respond to the gospel whatever it is however old we might be lord i pray that through the power of your holy spirit as we offer this opportunity to respond that that each of us would see that today indeed is the day of salvation and if we've yet to put our trust in jesus i pray we would today there may be some here this morning who put their trust in Christ long ago, but perhaps they're struggling in that trust today. Perhaps suffering, trials, or just the daily struggle of sin have led some of us to a place where we're not walking with you as we should, where we're not trusting in you as we should. We've been reminded this morning of the gospel. We've been reminded of our true condition before you and our desperate need for your grace and mercy. So help us, Lord, to respond to it in repentance and faith. We ask this as we lift our voices now and sing in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, church family and guests, we're going to respond to God's word now by just being thankful, by literally singing our thanks to Jesus. And as we do, I'll be available here to meet with you, to counsel with you, to pray with you. If God's leading you to come and confess Christ as Lord, to follow in obedience believers baptism to start the process of joining this church family or if you just need someone to pray with you today i'd be glad to do that so we invite you to come as we invite everyone to sing jesus 